we had a book when my girls were little. I couldn't find it, actually. looked for it for this message and could not find it. But it was a, a series of true stories about animals, animals remarkable for one reason or another. And the book was written in the 40s or 50s. It was just a little paperback written by a number of authors. And one of the stories, so this was occurring when the Midwest was still being settled. So there were still rural areas with farms and farmers, small scale. There was a family that had a great family dog, family pet. They loved it. It was docile. It was the nicest pet in the world great with their kids, they were thrilled. Neighbors around their farm, though, started complaining about livestock that was killed. And the conundrum was, it, it clearly wasn't wolves or coyotes because the carcasses weren't eaten. Something had just savagely killed these livestock, sheep and goats, maybe small cattle, and just left them. And everybody in this community is trying to figure out what is going on. What animal is this? Well, the family knows it's clearly not their pet. Their pet's at home every night, and this pet is so docile it never heard a thing. Until one morning, the dad's up earlier than normal, and he sees Rover uh, slinking home. And Rover's face is covered with blood. And, and Rover, who appears on one hand to be this docile pet, is in fact this very sly, very clever, very conniving killer, and their Rover is the one killing the neighbor's livestock. Very different side. When, uh, when, this is decades ago, when we were going to get our girls their, I guess their first lasting pet. We'd had some pets along the way, but we were going to get a dog, and the DeWalt's, our relatives, had had a litter of labs, and this is a real picture of, of the, our first dog, Ted. We say Ted the knucklehead. <laughs> Ted, Ted the knucklehead. Ted, we, we picked the fattest, slowest, lumpiest puppy hoping that that would be his persona, and it would be low-key, easygoing, life would be good. And he was not the brightest bulb, and I won't get into the antics that he pulled, but the girls loved him, and they thought Ted was the greatest dog around. And he could do almost no wrong for them, until we got a second dog. And Ted's demeanor suddenly changed. Now, Ted didn't actually do this. This is... This is exaggeration, but we found there was another side to Ted. And uh, when we introduced Molly, this, this other puppy, he was getting a little old. I think he was nine or 10 years old. We thought he needed some help. We got a puppy, and she was a delightful little puppy. She was not excessively nippy, you know, or trying to get the older dog to play with her. Ted, we had this oversized dog house in the dog run, and Ted loved that dog house. And we'd fill it with hay, you know, and in cold weather, he'd love to get in there and snuggle up and and he would bar the door so she couldn't get in with him. You know, he put his butt right there in the door, blocking it so she couldn't, and that's all she wanted to do was lay next to Ted, and it was not gonna happen, and, and it never did. There was this other side to Ted. And last, just on the way of introduction, we had a Christmas Eve night, and it was cold, and there were snow flurries, and we're inside, it's dark outside, and I keep hearing something in the backyard, and I'm wondering what? is that? So I finally went outside, and there was a kitten at the back door, and it's Christmas Eve. What are you going to do? Are you going to turn that kitten away? Jesus looked for the manger, and we kicked him out, you know? What am I going to do with this cat? So, you know, I brought the kitten in. I thought, you know, what do I do? You know, and she was a kitten, small. This is her, but when she's grown up, 
Uh, she's purring away, and the girls are terrified. They think this little thing is growling at them. We said, no, she's happy. She's purring away. And we, we fed her some milk, of course, and kept her. And we named her uh, uh, Sheba, the queen. Sheba was the queen. And she was, uh, I know a lot of guys especially don't like cats. And, and that's what I was like before we got cats. But I will tell you, uh, she was the best pet. She was docile. If the girls were sick, she would lay in bed with them all day. She'd take care of them. And they woke up and they were fearful in the night. Kathy would say, go get one of the cats. And you'd get a cat and the cat would sleep with them. And, and life was grand. And she was trained. She wouldn't get on the furniture, et cetera, et cetera. She was great. We thought, man, this is the perfect cat until we brought another cat home. <laughs> and then there was this whole other side. And literally, this is closer to Shashiba's response than that other image was of, of Ted's. For all that Sheba was positively, once we introduced Cleo, Cleopatra, another queen, uh, you know, she didn't want any part of her. And, you know, we had to keep Cleo under a laundry basket for three or four days just so Sheba wouldn't kill her, literally, literally, you know, if you know cats. And uh, Sheba never changed. Cleo, Cleo wanted to snuggle up, just wanted to be friends, and Sheba was not having it, ever and didn't to the end of their days. All of this is by way of introduction into the 28th message of the Heroes and Villains series. And the reason we bring up these contrasts, this, this dog on one hand who's everything you want a dog to be positively, but then you find out there's this whole other dark side. You know, this huge upside and this huge downside. And the guy we're looking at this morning is a villain, and, and his name is Joab. And Joab's actually the reason that this series occurred at all. Uh, Joab, for me, is one of the most complex, curious figures in all the Bible. And I thought at different times I want to teach on the life of Joab, and that actually is what sprang into this series. Um, but Joab's a conundrum. Because on one hand, Joab appears as good as it gets as far as faithfulness and oriented towards others and, and oriented towards God in a, in a very specific way. But then you look at the downsides and you look at his end and you realize for all the upside, the downside is worse. And that this character who, who glows on one hand is really a very, very dark soul on the other. The upside is very high. The downside is even further down. That's the life of Joab. That's who we're going to look at this morning. And Joab's like that family pet. He, he appears to be the best when he's there. Rover's there with his parents until he slinks home, slinks home with blood all over himself. Um, at the end of the day, we know Joab's a villain, but he's a cautionary tale for us. So as we as we think about Joab and his story, even though I think there are key differences, almost certainly for you and for me, it certainly can be beneficial to ask ourselves, in what ways do I or does my life look like Joab's? That is, this complex contradiction of I want to be one thing and I see myself being another. You know, I aspire nobly, but I see a whole totally different downside as well. Because I think the value for us in seeing the villains in the Bible is the things we're trying to avoid. So Job has an upside, and many people on the earth today, they have an upside, a huge upside. But the downside's greater. And I think also 
this is a judgment the text doesn't say specifically. I don't think Job was a believer. That's just Mike's assessment. It's Mike's opinion. Uh, there's no, no language of repentance in the story of Joab. Uh, but that's just a guess. But we'll look through this, and I believe most of us here are believers, so there's a little different take on that. Uh, Joab lives, as you can see, the same time David did. Joab is David's nephew. Uh, Joab, um, Asahel, and who is, no, who's my third brother? The sons of Zariah? Has a... <laughs> No, Amos is a cousin, sorry, suddenly blank. There's three brothers, and they're called the sons of Zariah. And Zariah is David's sister. And uh, their father dies apparently early, and so they're noted for their mother, not for their father. But they're David's nephews, and he's going to serve. He's a key figure in David's army and in David's administration. And under his helpful participation with David... On this map, the gray or the lighter color you see there is the extent of Israel during King Saul's reign. And as you can see, that area more than doubles under David's rule, but it also is because Joab was a key commander in his army. So the expansion of Israel was under David's rule, but it was in part due to Joab's excellence as a military leader. The main point as we're looking through this this morning would be this. Uh, remember that the whole series is to espouse a Christ-like faithfulness. What does Christ-like faithfulness look like in my life today? Our imitation of Christ-like faithfulness isn't measured so much when God's will aligns with our own, but when it doesn't. In those areas and times when we see ourselves reverting to Joab-like behavior, we should purpose to cry out to God to save us from ourselves, our darker side. So what we're going to do, we'll hop, skip, and jump through Joab's life as we do through most of these guys, we'll start with the highlights, and they're really high, and then we'll look at the flip side of Joab as well, the darker side. He's a remarkably capable warrior. Hopefully you have a study sheet. 2 Samuel 8.16, he's the commander over David's army, and if you were in a fight, this is the guy you want on your side, absolutely. So we're going to start in 2 Samuel 10. And guys, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to briefly bring you up to speed on a number of these incidents, just the stories that they're a part of. In 2 Samuel 10, King David had sent emissaries to King Hanan of Ammon, just on the other side of the Jordan and the Dead Sea, because his father, King Nahash, had died. So David sends these sympathizers to, hey, hey, sorry, sorry for the loss of your dad. But Hanan's counselors tell him, hey, that's not why they're here. They're really spying out the land. They want to attack us. They're going to gain intel and come back and harm us. And so they abuse David's men, and then they send them back. And having abused David's men, they know there's going to be retaliation. So they hire over 30,000 foreign fighters to come and help them. And Joab is going to go and fight this battle, and that's what we see here. Verse 7, 2 Samuel 10 at verse 7, David sent Joab and all the hosts of the mighty men and the Ammonites came out, and they drew up in battle array at the entrance of the gate. This is the city of Rabbah, actually modern-day Ammon, Jordan. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehob, the men of Tob and Maacah, were by themselves in the open country. So there's a hammer and there's an anvil. So there's the Ammonites' army at the city, but then the hirelings, they're out in the fields. And so basically Israel's army finds themselves opposed in front and behind. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, 
he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. And that's, he's taking the hardest part of the fight. He's taking the best fighters with him, and he's going to face what they assume will be the worst, the, the best of the fighters opposing them. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai. That's the third brother, by the way, Abishai. And he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, you help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I'll come and help you. So he's got a wise strategy. He's cool-headed. I mean, they're in a bad situation. He's calm. He's collected. He's got a strategy. They're going to go forward. And listen to this in verse 12. This is what he says to his brother. So they're surrounded in front and behind. He says, be of good courage and let us be courageous. For our people, not for ourselves, not for our lives, not so that we can get out of here and get home. For our people, for the cities of our God, and may Yahweh do what seems good to him. That's the kind of guy you want on your side, right? Let's be courageous for our fellow Jews and for the cities of our God. He's not saying it's all about me. We need to be courageous for the sake of others and for God. And then he says, and may Yahweh, God's personal name, do what seems good to him. We entrust ourselves. We're going to give it our best shot. And we trust the outcome to God. That's the kind of guy you want on your side. And they win. And, and it's his side. It's his group of fighters that defeat the hirelings. And the other guys, they run right back into the city of Rabbah. They're not going to take these guys on. So he's shrewd. He's courageous. He's calm. He's cool-headed. And he's got an outlook that's bigger than himself. It's God's people. And it's God. By the way, this, uh, uh, this part of David and Joab's story, it's actually a few chapters long, and it's the same setting. There, there's, this, there's chapter after chapter that actually has to do with Israel's interaction with the Ammonites, and that's actually when David's great sin occurs as well. So on your study sheet under B, later in the spring of the year, this is when David should be out fighting with them, but he's not. We'll pick his story up later. Uh, in the spring of the year, Joab is besieging Rabbah, that same city. So they, they fled into the city. It's a walled city. Israel gave up the battle for the season. Spring comes around. They're ready to restart. They're going to go back against Rabbah, the Ammonite city. And Joab fought against Rabbah. He took the royal city. He sent messengers to David and he said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. And I'll pause here for just a second. Rabbah's the main city, but their water supply was higher than the city itself. And it was really a fortress. Joab's calling it a city here. It's a fortress, and it's to protect their water supply. And so Joab says, I've taken the water supply, and that means I'm about ready to take the city. Now then, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. And this flashes back to David. Do you remember that after David slays Goliath, the people are singing not King Saul's praises. They're singing David's praises. And Joab says to David, if I take the city, the people will be singing my praises instead of yours. You're the king. You should get the credit. So come down now so you take the city and it's your name that's elevated and people give you the king the honor. Joab didn't have anything personal to gain by that. He was happy to fulfill his role as a military commander, but he wanted David's honor to be magnified through this. 
we're covering a lot of ground uh, just to make points, but, but we want to see what Job's like in a number of situations. This is out of 2 Samuel 14. Uh, remember David's son Absalom had murdered his other son Amnon. Amnon had raped Absalom's sister Tamar. And then he had waited. By this time he invited all the king's sons in, Absalom did, and he murdered Amnon there and then he fled. Flood where he was safe. Well, David's heart is going after his son Absalom. And Joab knows it. And Joab knows David wants to be restored to Absalom, but he's not doing anything about it. And so there's a somewhat lengthy story in which Joab contrives to tell David a story in which he will see that he really should bring his son Absalom back. And that's exactly what happens. Now, forgetting all kinds of other things that are tied to this story, what you see in Joab's role here is he was a peacemaker. He was the mediator who was able to do what David really wanted, but simply couldn't find a way within himself to carry off. So he restored, to the degree that he had anything to do about it, he restored David to his son Absalom. It's not a full restoration. If you read the stories, you know that this is all tragic anyway. Um, but you see him in the role of a peacemaker, helping Absalom come back and be restored to the degree that David could, in fact, allow him to be. Here's another one where, I like this image, by the way. Tells you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. Joab did that to Absalom because he's not fully restored. He's upset with his father. He raises an army. He revolts against David. David flees. He goes to the other side of the Jordan, flees from his son Absalom. And during the fight, when Absalom's army pursues David and David's loyal followers, they go out and they combat them. Absalom is slain. We'll talk about that again in just a minute. But when David hears news that Absalom is slain, all he can think about is his son is dead. Now his army, they were loyal to him. They'd left Jerusalem. They'd left house and home. They'd fled with him. They fought his battle to save his life and his throne. And all David says is, Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. And Joab, as a good friend, he goes up and he rebukes David. And he says, basically what I'm hearing is you would be okay if we were all dead, we who have risked life and limb to save you, you'd be okay if we're all dead, but your son's alive. And he told him, if you don't go out right now and show yourself to these folks who have put themselves out for you and bless them, they're going to leave. You won't have anybody to rule over. You won't have a throne left. Not because we lost the battle, but because you lost the hearts of the folks you're king over. That was Joab. And David does go out. And he does. He thanks the people. And he blesses them. And that's why David still had folks to lead. was because of Joab's interaction. And then last along this line, the stories, as many stories in the Bible are, it's not entirely clear what's behind some of this. But later in life, David wants to take a census of the people of Israel. Now, censuses were taken of Israel at other times and places, but for some reason at this point, Chronicles and Kings have a little different uh, language about this. In one, God moves David. God's not happy with David, doesn't tell us why, to have a census. In another text, it says Satan moved David to take a census. In any event, it was not a good thing to do. It was a bad thing. It was a wicked thing to do. And Joab, for whatever reason, he knows it. And so he says to David, may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are. 
while the eyes of my Lord the King still live to see it. He's older now. But why does my Lord the King delight in this thing? He basically, he tries to tell David, don't do the census. It's trouble. Don't do it. And David does it anyway. He says, nope, I'm firm on this. This is what I want. And because of that, if you know the story, thousands of Jews lose their lives in God's judgment on David because he wouldn't listen to Joab. Joab tried to stop him from doing something he knew was going to bring harm. He wasn't able to, but that's what he tried to do. He stood up to say, David, stop. This is a bad thing. Don't do it. So on the upside of Joab's life, he fights David's battles, Israel's battles, God's battles. He makes sure that it's David who gets the honor, not himself. He's the peacemaker who attempts to restore father and son. He reproves David when he's thoughtless about his own followers. He tries unsuccessfully to prevent David from harming himself and the nation through the census. He's really a remarkable character. If you read commentaries about Joab, most of the commentators will say something like this, that everything Joab did, he did for himself. That he's a Machiavellian ruler. He's a, he's a prince who will stop at nothing to get his way for his own sake. And... Joab is deeply dark, as we'll see here in a moment, absolutely. But I don't believe that caricature is true of him. I believe that he really was, in certain ways, he was highly faithful. He was highly loyal. He was great in a number of ways. They're trying to take away, I think, it's like this guy couldn't be this good and this bad. And I think, no, that's exactly the point. He is that good and he is that bad. And that's why it appears to be this contradiction, but, but that's us. <laughs> that's us, isn't it? <laughs> that's us. That's why I think Joab is such a helpful tale. He was that good. And as you'll see, and if you perhaps already know, and he is that bad as well. And that's why I think it's helpful for us to look at his life. If these things were all we knew about Joab, we'd say, man, that's a stellar guy. That's a hero of the faith. And as you know, unfortunately, it's not. So maybe like the family pet, you know, that came home covered in blood. That's a bit like Joab. He looked great on one hand, and he is one bloody, bloody dude on the other. And really what you see, sort of the key downside of Joab, uh, he has a murderous spirit. He, he simply doesn't value life the way God does, the way David does, the way he should. And even given that he's a military commander... And that his whole life is about arms and fights and battles. All that is a given. He doesn't value life the way God does or justice. And he doesn't uphold God and God's right to save or to take life. He takes matters into his own hand again and again. The first one is in 2 Samuel 3. And again, the backstory is after King Saul and his sons had been killed by the Philistines... One remaining son was left, Ishbosheth. And Abner, one of the commanders of Saul's army, said to Ishbosheth, We're going to set up your kingdom in the northern ten tribes because David's already going to be received down in his tribe of Judah and Simeon. But we'll set you up in your kingdom. And Ishbosheth's reign really is due to Abner, the command, just like Joab. Abner is his key role. But Abner's offended by Ishbosheth, and he says, Fine. 
he goes down to David and he says, David, everybody knows you should be king over all Israel. Everybody knows it. We know that's what God wants. And so I will deliver to you the ten northern tribes. You'll be king over all of Israel. It'll be a united monarchy again. And David says, great, it's a plan. We'll do it. Joab's not there, though. He comes back and hears this story. Abner's come. David's made peace with him. He's going to deliver the ten tribes. Joab raises to David and he says, just like the counselors of Hanon in Ammon did, he said, hey, you can't trust Abner. He's here. This is a plan. This is, he's being sly. Don't trust him. Don't believe him. And Joab sends messengers after Abner. And he says, hey, you, you got to come back. we got to take care of some things. And so he comes. This is 2 Samuel 3. This is at verse uh, 27. Abner returns to Hebron. That's where David was ruling in the first seven years of his reign. Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate of the city to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. So Joab murders in cold blood. This is premeditated murder. Murders in cold blood Abner. Because in a time of war, Abner had slain Joab's younger brother, Asahel. And again, if you've read the story, there's a fight between Ishbosheth's men and David's men. And Ishbosheth's men, Abner included, they flee. And Asahel is swift as a gazelle and he chases uh, Abner. And Abner pleads with him in the story. He says, please go chase somebody else. In fact, he says, how will I look at Joab, your brother, if I'm forced to kill you? And Asahel won't be put off, and Abner has to kill him to save his own life. And so in a time of war, Joab, Abner didn't want to kill him, but he did. And out of that, Joab comes and in premeditated, cold-blooded murder, slays Abner in the gate of the city. And to make matters worse, Hebron is a city of refuge. It was a city in which if someone had been a manslayer, had killed someone, not premeditated murder, they could flee to Hebron and they'd be safe until the case was heard and a judgment would be rendered. And in a city of refuge, this is what Joab does to Abner. Premeditatedly murders him. 2 Samuel 11, after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and she tells him, hey, I'm pregnant. Her husband was gone. And he's gone with Joab at the city of Rabbah. They're still going to take that city. Same story, same setting. And David can't connive adequately to get Uriah to have sex with his wife so that he'll think her pregnancy is from him. And David's stuck. He's in a bad place. And so this is what David does. This is obviously the low point of his life. David, 2 Samuel eleven fourteen. 14. David wrote a letter to Joab and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. So is that low? David sends Uriah's death sentence in Uriah's hand. He said, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. As Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And just as David had intended, Uriah, who was a mighty man in David's army, Uriah was overcome and he and others were slain. So David is doing the most dastardly of deeds. This is premeditated murder by the sword of their enemy. But it's murder nonetheless. It's just extended by one person or another. 
Joab, who was willing to tell David in other situations, don't do this thing. When it's murder, he just goes right along like there's no problem. Because for Joab, murder was the easy way out of taking care of whatever was going on, whatever problem there was in life. We'll just get rid of the problem. We'll get rid of that person. And so when he should have stood up to David and said, don't do this thing, he simply is complicit. He goes right along. And because he did that, Uriah is killed by the Ammonites, as are other men as well. He was willing to stand up sometimes, but when it came to David's duplicity and murderous spirit, Joab melds right in. He becomes part of the plan. And guys, sometimes, you know this, sometimes faithlessness for us means we just be, we be or we keep silent. That there's something that's going on, someone's being abused or misused or something wrong is occurring, and we simply remain silent and we're faithless in those times. When the situation calls for us to say something, or we just go along, because that's all, that's all he did. He just went along with David's plan, and he didn't have to. Sometimes faithlessness doesn't require, it's the sin of omission, not necessarily the sin of commission. Uh, he, yeah, he's a murderous spirit. Uh, later, back to the, the story of Absalom and David, 2 Samuel 18 Remember, it was God's judgment on David and his household because of his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah that he said that to David, the sword will never leave your house. And so Absalom raises that army and they pursue David and they have a battle. And before the battle, David had told his men this, 2 Samuel 18, 5, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So Job's in the battle, and a guy comes up and says, hey, uh, by the way, I saw Absalom over there. He's hanging in the tree. He was famous for his, his huge head of hair, and he's stuck in an oak tree, and he's hanging between heaven and earth. And Job says, well, did you kill him? Well, no, because everybody heard the king's command. Don't, don't harm him. And Job's like, well, what are you talking about? This is verse 14. Joab took three javelins in his hand. He thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. One would do it. He does three. Ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. The king has made his desire, his command, absolutely clear, and it doesn't make a shade of difference to Joab. He's like, I'm, I'm assuming in his mind, he thinks this is a bad idea because Absalom's revolted. He can revolt again. This is not good. We've got to preserve the throne, preserve David's throne. And so he just, David said, don't kill him and don't harm him. And Absalom, Joab just says, well, Sorry, that's what I'm going to do. This is my plan is better. And so he just murders the guy hanging in the tree, can't defend himself. It is the time of warfare. And probably in, Dave, in the bigger picture, this probably did serve David's interest better, but that wasn't Joab's decision to make. The king had already spoken. He absolutely disregarded the command. And then uh, last along this, this section of Joab's life, this is 2 Samuel 20. King David had commissioned another nephew, Amasa. So Amasa is the son of David's sister, Abigail. So Amasa and Joab are cousins. And Amasa had been on Absalom's side in the war. And after the war, David still says, I can use my nephew and we're good again, we're restored. And so Amasa is going to lead David's army and he's given this command. There's a secondary revolt after Absalom and he says, man, this could be worse than the first. So Amasa, you go take care of this guy. 
And this is what happens. So Joab knows he's going to be supplanted. David's going to replace him as the military commander. Verse 8, they get to this, the stone that's in Gibeon, and Amasa came to meet them. Joab's wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, the sword falls out. So he's approaching Amasa, his cousin. The sword falls out. Joab says to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? Joab, so he stoops down, he picks up the sword in one hand. He rises, he takes Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. And he died. In fact, if you read the story, it is grotesque. The story is grotesque. And his indifference here is hard to overstate. His cousin, whom he's just, he's disemboweled his cousin. His cousin is writhing in his blood, still alive. And Joab just says, drag him out of the way and cover him up because he's a, he's a distraction to the other guys. We're going to war. You, you couldn't see more indifference to the life of another person. And this is, this is David's nephew. It's his cousin, and it makes no difference whatsoever. Near the end of David's life, uh, this is 1 Kings uh, 1 and 2. Uh, Joab makes a choice. David's winding down. Everybody knows that David's not long for the world. And so, who's going to be the next king? That's always the question. Who's replacing him? Who's standing up next? And so, Joab, along with several others, they support, without David's permission, and contrary to David's will, they support Adonijah, David's son, as king. In fact, they proclaim him king. And David says to Solomon, this is in 1 Kings 2, you know what Joab the son of Zariah did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner the son of Ner, and Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. You think of Christians, you know, you're garbed with the gospel of peace. Well, David says of Joab, he is garbed in blood and murder. Therefore, act according to your wisdom. Don't let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. He should be executed. I'm, I'm turning the reins of government over to you. He should be executed. This guy, you can't trust him, and he's guilty. He's a murderer. He's guilty of innocent blood. You get to 1 Kings 2, and this is Joab's end. This is, uh, this is important. How does Joab's life end? When the news came to Joab, this is verse 28, of what David had counseled Solomon to do, Joab fled to the tent of the Lord and caught hold of the horns of the altar. When it was told King Solomon, Joab has fled to the tent of the Lord, and behold, he's beside the altar, Solomon sent Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, saying, go strike him down. Go execute him. And so... He goes, Benaiah goes, and he says, it's, sorry, it's almost comical. He says, Joab, come out of there. And Joab says, I won't come out. As long as I'm here, you won't kill me. He says, I won't come out. So Benaiah goes back to Solomon and says, he won't come out. And Solomon says, well, go slay him right where he's at then. Holding onto the horns of the altar, go slay him right there anyway. 
Do as he said, strike him down and bury him and take away from me and from my father's house the guilt for the blood that Joab shed without cause. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, went up and struck him down and put him to death and he was buried in his house in the wilderness. And that's his end. David, his uncle, whom he'd served all his life, David says, you can't let this guy continue living. He must be executed. The blood he has shed is, is as it were, on Israel and on my household. And it's got to be cleared. There's a theology of that in the law, especially in Deuteronomy. You can look at later if you're interested. So Joab has this honorless death, this end. He's cold-blooded in murder. He's calculating in a ruthless manner. He's committed to his own agenda against his kings. And there's never any language of repentance. And that's key. There's never anything that hints that Joab thinks anything he did was wrong. His end is not good, but there's never anything in his story to suggest, like in David's story, that there's repentance, that there's humility, that there's a change of mind. So this is Joab. He's exemplary in faithfulness except when he isn't. He's the best of friends unless you cross him. He's the noblest of leaders except when he is base. He's a mix of greatness and sin. He's a confusing contrast of extreme loyalty and extreme self-serving. And I would say the spirit of Joab lives today. Other than the extreme nature of his contradictions, Joab probably looks a lot like you and me. That we really can be, on one hand, in some situations, that good, that noble, that holy. And at other times, we really can be that base, that bad, that bad, that badly ignoble. Certainly there are times in our lives when our faith is strong, we're obedient, we're being faithful, life is good, God's in his heaven and all's right with the world, and we rejoice with those times. And then there are times when, like Joab, we simply do whatever we want to do. You know, I've been around the faith long enough to have seen these extremes in not only my own life, but the lives of others around me. And what it does for me is it magnifies the grace of God at the end of the day. That, that if we're honest with ourselves about how good we can be on one hand and then absolutely the other be that bad and know that God has chosen to love us in Christ anyway, that's really clarifying for me. You know, most of us, we still have this sense of performance-based living, don't we? That we're going to live to a certain level, a standard, which we aspire to, right? The whole thing is Christ-like transformation. But God knows full well what we're made of and what we're like. And He knows the worst of our sins before we ever commit it. And which one of us as a Christian, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, hasn't seen your own life in the lens of Romans 7? I'm doing the very things I hate. And the things I know I should do, I'm not doing. I look a lot in those moments like Joab. And other moments, I see myself and I feel I'm, I'm doing good. Or others say, man, you're doing great, whatever. But, but guys, I think, again, just as a guess, if Joab's an unsaved man, this, we don't compare to him in that way. But as believers, do we not see that we can have times of sublime faith on one hand? And then other times of absolute disloyalty to God and to others and to the church. And for me, that's the message of Joab. That's the, the caution that I want to take home is I've got to see life from a different vantage point. 
Joab's life ends at the altar where sacrifice was made. The law said that for the sin of the high hand, there is no sacrifice, there is no atonement. Joab, who spilled blood, premeditated, cold-blooded, he's at the altar, but there's no sacrifice. He's at the place where sacrifice is made, but he's died, he's judged for his sins there. Now you think of us as Christians. You and I died, Romans 6 is very clear on this. Romans 6 says, Jesus didn't just die for you to cover your sins, but you died with Christ. You and I have already suffered the judgment, the death sentence in Christ. Paul says in Romans, we died with Christ. We are at the place of sacrifice also, not an altar, but the cross. And that when we see those Joab-like behaviors in us, we're supposed to remember all that I was before has been crucified in Christ. The worst that I could be from that old sinful nature has all been put to death in Christ on the cross. And I don't have to live like that. I don't have to act out of that Joab-like spirit of bitterness or hatred or envy or greed or lust, whatever it is. Because I have died and my life is hidden with God in Christ. That's true. That's true of us. It's true of all of us. And having died with Christ at the place of sacrifice, the cross, Paul tells us in Romans 12, now live as if you're not next to the altar, but on the altar and see your life as this sacrifice, not the place that you die now, but the place you live, the altar of offering. That you're like the whole burnt offering, not a judgment of sin, but something committed entirely, devoted entirely to God Himself, unlike Joab. I read uh, Mel Gibson's story just the other day. We'd watched a movie, actually a fairly remarkable movie, it's called The Professor and the Madman, based on a true story of a book I happen to have read several years ago. I won't get into it, but because of that, I looked up Gibson's life. And you know what you see? You see this remarkable contradiction, just like Joab. In some ways, Gibson, and, and I admire him still today because of his honesty about his own Joab moment. This guy was just this uh, deeply religious Deeply religious guy with a lot of kids, married for about three decades to the same woman. He was a very faithful, loving uh, husband and father until he wasn't. And then he takes up with a young gal on the beach and his wife finds out and that ends his marriage. And in these drunken states, he's pulled over, he's arrested and the most vile accusations come out of his mouth. And you'd think there doesn't appear to be a connection. This does not appear to be the same guy. And yet when he was called on it, he would fess up. And he'd say, I was vile. I can't believe the stuff I said. I shouldn't have said any of that. Deeply apologetic. I mean, you saw, see these extremes, really greatness on one hand and just baseness on the other. The difference between him and, and Joab, whatever his status is between he and the Lord, is that there's repentance. There's a humility after these failures. You never see that in the life of Joab. But we're a bundle of contradictions, aren't we? We... We want to live up, you know, and then we sin and we're like, Lord, I can't believe it. I did it again. But I think for me, Joab is that reminder. Don't be surprised at our own failures or the failures of others on one hand. And also don't be surprised at the greatness that you may see in the life of someone that you didn't think capable of it. If they're a Christian, they really are a new creature. They have a Christ life and the spirit within them. 
But until we get to heaven, until we're shed of these bodies, we ourselves are a bundle of contradictions at times. We want to aspire to more consistently put to death the old Joab and embrace the new, the new Christ life, and then live that life, that sanctified life on the altar as an offering to God. With that, why don't you guys stand and let's read as the worship team comes up from Ephesians 4, this text that talks about the old and the new and living in one and not the other. Ephesians 4, 22. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness.